Good morning. Hey, bef- thank you. Before I, uh, before I get started, I want to uh, point your attention to a flyer that you got in your bulletin. Uh, and this is a, this is a fundraiser uh, for the family of Colson Edwards, who's in the hospital, and we've been praying for Colson. Uh, just a really simple way to, to support the family, uh, because all that this fundraiser involves is eating food. And who doesn't love to eat food? Seriously, only one of you likes to eat food? <laughs> you guys need to go get a shot of the espresso out there. Wake up a little. By the way, David, I don't know if David's back in here. What a great morning to have espresso uh, for us this morning. I started off with a shot of espresso, uh, so I may be a little bit wired. If I'm talking too fast for you, just like raise your hand and I'll slow down. But anyway, make sure you take this flyer to Boston's. All you have to do is eat. You can eat breakfast, lunch, or dinner there. Take this flyer in, and 20% of this of the proceeds will go to uh, Colson's family. And uh, I believe this goes through uh, the end of September. So you have plenty of time. Pass these out to your friend. I believe they're on our website as well. Is that right, Kim? Uh, they're on our website, so if you lose this, you can download that, print it off uh, of our website. And that'll be great a great way to, uh, to support uh, one of our families. Um, so let me, let me ask you something. Have, have, have any of you guys ever... Um, experienced someone who, I'm trying to get my iPad here so I can see what I'm doing. Um, Have have any of you experienced someone who you set expectations for and they simply did not live up to their expectations? So when I was in college, I have a friend in my mind and I'm not gonna, when I tell this story, it's gonna be a good story, but I'm not gonna mention his name, because he may or may not have at one point been a youth pastor here on the district. So I'm not going to mention his name because some of you might know him, may or may not have been at Springfield High Street Church previously and is now in Chicago. He's not on the district anymore, so it's okay. I can talk about him, right? So here's the deal. We're in college. The reason that I went to college was to win intramural sports t-shirts. That's what, we, that's what I went to college for. I wanted to collect as many intramural sports t-shirts as I possibly could. That's all that mattered. Now, I might have spent a whole lot of money in order to do that, but I got three t-shirts. So I'm proud of those three t-shirts. So here's the deal. Freshman year, um, what I was really looking forward to most was playing softball. I, I, I love to play softball. I still like to play softball. I wanted to play softball. We were starting a freshman team. We were the new guys uh, on campus. And so uh, some of my friends and I started gathering some, some guys together to, to form this softball team. And so we, we, we've got the core of our softball team, but we're still a few players short. And I remember one day early on in the semester, uh, we were sitting in class and we were talking about softball. Now, just gloss over the fact that it was during class that we were talking about softball. I'm certain that it was before the professor started lecturing and we were just, at least I hope, I really don't remember. But as I was was thinking through the story, I'm like, Josh, why were you talking about softball in class? You're supposed to be learning. I paid for my education, I can do what I want. Thank you very much. So anyway, we're talking about, we're talking about softball in class and uh, and this, this guy in front of us, a couple seats in front of us, he turns around and uh, he's an upperclassman, this youth pastor that I'm referring to. He turns around and he says, 
You guys need somebody else for your softball team? I love to play softball. I'm pretty good. Uh, I've got a couple bats, and I'm, and I'm thinking, you know, somebody who has softball bats, softball bats are expensive. Like, good softball bats are expensive. And dedicated players typically buy their own softball, softball bats. And so I'm like, freshman team, all right, we can pick up an upperclassman. This is going to be good. I said, out. <laughs> I didn't mean to say his name. I said, okay, you can be on our team. So I signed him up on our roster. We get out there for, we get out there for the beginning of our, of, our, of our season and we're like, okay, he's pretty good. I mean, he's, he's kind of has some muscles and I thought, okay, he can probably hit. Um, and so, and so he, he, he says he's pretty good, he can play. So we're gonna put him at second base. So we put him at second base and, and no joke, the first inning, a routine pop fly, a can of corn, to second base and he reaches up and totally misses the ball. Like it didn't even hit his glove. And I was like, you have got to be kidding me. We picked him up thinking that he was going to be good. Sometimes the expectations that we have for people are, uh, are not what um, are not reality. They're not based on reality. They don't live up to the expectations that we set. This, this Lent series that we've been going through, starting last week with Pastor Christie, we've been looking again at, at some of the stories, the journey that Jesus took uh, from Palm Sunday leading into and beyond Easter and resurrection. We've, we've kind of approached this as a way that when we look deeper, when we take a second look at these stories, there may be a little bit of richness and truth that we can pull out from these stories. Here's the deal. The people of this day were longing for and wanted a Messiah. They wanted someone to come in and conquer the world. They wanted someone to stand up and represent them. They were longing for and waiting for this strong ruler. They were hoping for someone who would come in and, and say it like it was, wouldn't mince words and tell it the way that it was. They wanted someone who would have the Jews' best interest in mind, someone who would speak up and stand up for them someone to make Israel great again. The events leading up to and including Easter force us to look again because that's not the kind of ruler that this Messiah was. And in this idea of looking again and, and kind of digging up and discovering uh, another truth regardless of what we were longing for or waiting for, um, has, we, we've, we've put a participatory element uh, in the back of the sanctuary. And Christy pointed it out um, last week, but I just want to make mention again. Um, Nancy, Nancy Thompson has placed a uh, Thanksgiving jars in the back. And so if you would, at some point through this series, there's little slips of paper that you can tear off. And the idea is this, taking a circumstance from your life and looking again. Something that maybe on the surface level doesn't look pleasant or hard uh, or enjoyable, um, 
But when we look again, we can see that God was faithful in those circumstances. And what better time to thank God than in those circumstances. So I would encourage you uh, to do that. We're also looking for stories that we can share and make public. And so if you have a story like that that you'd like to share with us, you can email us or write it down and drop it in one of the mailboxes uh, in, the, in the office. And, uh, and that would be good, good where we can celebrate those times where God has been faithful, even when on the surface level it looks like things, uh, it looked like things were going to be difficult. So today we're going to look at the events between Palm Sunday and the crucifixion. And we're going to take a look again at these stories and see what we might be able to pull out of these stories. And I think that what we're going to find is that instead of this story of conquering and this story of strength and power and rights and greatness, I think that what we're going to find is a story of surrender. And like any good storyteller, I'm going to start right in the middle of the story. And so as I do that, um, if you would like to follow along with me, uh, I'm going to be reading a good amount of scripture this morning. Uh, And if you want to follow along, I'm going to be in Matthew chapter 26 and 27, kind of flipping back and forth. But feel free to... uh, to, to take um, a look in your, in, your own, in your own Bibles and follow along with me. Um, Matthew chapter 26, we're going to pick up the story in the Garden of Gethsemane, but again, we're going to start kind of in the middle of this story. And so in Matthew chapter 26, ver- starting in verse 36, it says this. I'm sorry, we're not going to start in verse 36. We're going to start in verse 47. See, we're starting in the middle, not the beginning, Josh. It's hard to tell a story from the middle. I want to tell it from the beginning. (laughs) Matthew 26, verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Friend, do what you came for. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted deserted him and fled. In In this particular section of the story, what I want to focus on is Jesus's surrender of self interest. His surrender of self interest. And to do that, I want to kind of take into consideration the setting in which this story takes place. It's in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus has 
has retreated to pray with some of his disciples. Now, Scripture in, the, in, in kind of the reading into this a little bit would suggest that this was not a new place for Jesus and his disciples, that he would often retreat to this place and, and take time out to pray in solitude and silence and be with just his disciples to kind of get away from the crowds. Now, Judas, in his plans to betray Jesus, would have certainly known about this place and would have known that Jesus would have been in this situation. This is where Jesus would be, and he knew that it would be a quiet retreat with not very many people around. Jesus, on the other hand, probably would have known that he would have been exposed in this environment. You see, Jesus knew what was coming. He had a pretty good idea that this was the time. He knew what was coming. And he certainly would have known that in this quiet retreat where he's praying to his father, that he would have been exposed. In fact, he even goes so far as to kind of call out his opponents and call out those who are coming to get him and, and to say, guys, you are coming at me like with an army, like I'm leading some kind of violent rebellion and that I'm, that I'm taking up arms and you come at me in this way. And, and then he goes this on to say that you could have easily taken me at all the temples where I've been preaching. In all these times where I've been sitting and teaching in the temple, you could have just taken me there. But instead, you've decided to come here where, I'm been, where I've been exposed. You see, the, 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 the rulers, the officials would have probably been worried that if, he, if they took him in the, in the temple, that there would have been a crowd. And that this crowd would have stood up for him. Because you remember how the crowd was, right? They would follow Jesus for what they could get out of, out of him, right? They would feed him and they would perform these miracles and they would heal people. And so certainly if these officials came to arrest Jesus in this setting, they would have stood up for him and they would have made it difficult and made a scene. Instead, Jesus opened himself up to this arrest. He willingly went to a place where he was exposed. He knew the risk. But here's the thing. Jesus didn't let fear of his well-being dictate his actions. He didn't let the fear of his well-being get in the way of communicating and surrendering his will to the Father. He had surrendered self-interest for the interest of all of mankind. In the next part of this, of this story, uh, we, we see Peter doing what we would expect Peter to do, right? Peter is kind of a, um, uh, he, he's kind of a fly off the cuff kind of guy and just jumps into actions. And sometimes he gets a bad rap for that. But I, but I gotta be honest, I think that Peter's actions here are what we would probably do if we were in that situation. Because Peter would have been, not only was he one of Jesus' good friends, but Peter would have also been one of those guys who were longing for and waiting for this Messiah, this ruler, this conqueror, this strong leader to come and rescue them. Peter would have been one of those guys who were waiting for this moment. So how, how can you blame Peter for this? 
Here is Jesus, his friend, but also hopefully this Messiah who's being arrested. This isn't the way that Peter saw things going. And so he, he stepped into action. Now in the story, he, he takes out the, the sword and he, he chops off the ear of the servant. And I've always wondered, like, what was Peter aiming for? Like, was he aiming to cut off the ear? Because if he, if he was, that's pretty good sword aim. I've never really like swung a sword and aimed for something. But if he was aiming for the, for the ear and he sliced off the ear, I mean, he, that's, that's pretty solid aim, right? Or, or was he like, was he going for the jugular? Was, I mean, was he trying to cut off the dude's head and like he kind of, you know, turned and then got, I, anyway, that's just me. I, I, like to, I like to look into those. What was Peter aiming for in this situation? So he takes, takes matters into his own hand and he draws the sword and he lops off the dude's ear. And then in typical Jesus fashion, he rebukes Peter because that's what Jesus typically does with Peter is he rebukes him for his off the cuff remarks and actions. But Peter was looking out for his own self-interest. This was his friend, but this was also his Messiah, his conqueror, his, his ruler, his leader. He was also certainly looking out for the interest of Jesus as well. See, I think Peter was trying to bring about Jesus's victory. And we can't really blame him. I think that part of the denial of self-interest or, or part of even protecting our self-interest, I think that sometimes it comes in the form of defense and defending ourselves. And Jesus, again, in typical Jesus to Peter interaction, says, Peter, put your sword away. Haven't you seen what my kingdom is all about? And besides that, don't you think that I, Jesus, the Son of God, don't you think that if I wanted to defend myself and to look out for my own self-interest, don't you think that I could call on God himself to send down all the defense that I would ever need? that I have legions of angels at my disposal to come down and protect me. But that's not what this kingdom is about. That's not the kind of kingdom that I've been ushering in. Jesus was living in a different way. He was living a life of surrendered self-interest. Now, this is certainly not an isolated event in Scripture where Jesus was, was living this life of surrendered self-interest. In fact, um, when you read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most popular sermon, this is what he was talking about. When he presents this idea to turn the other cheek, to offer the other cheek, this was Jesus putting that into action. Jesus had every opportunity to act in self-interest. Instead, he showed us that the way of the kingdom that he was establishing was surrender of self-interest. Let's fast forward the story a little bit. In, in Matthew 27, 
um, we're, we're going to pick up the story where Jesus starts to face the officials and, and, and he's standing on trial. Uh, Matthew chapter 27, we're going to start in verse 1. It says, Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people came to the, de- came to the decision to put Jesus to death. They bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. Then we're going to fast forward to, uh, to verse 11. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge to the great amazement of the governor. Now, it was the governor's custom at the, at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. When Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him the message, don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called Christ? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that, an, that instead an uproar was starting. He took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, let his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. So here it is. The very moment that that the people were waiting for. It's, it's like Pilate was throwing him a fastball right down the middle. He was asking him, Jesus, are you the son of man? Are you who they say you are? Declare yourself as the Messiah. It's like Pilate was setting him up to just knock this out of the park. And you can imagine that, that those who were waiting for, for a Messiah and thought that Jesus was the Messiah were thinking this is the moment where Jesus is going to answer to Pilate and he's going to declare once and for all that I am the conqueror. I am the ruler, the leader that you've been waiting for. I am the Messiah. And that's not what Jesus did. In verse 11 and 12, it says that he said nothing. That he didn't take this opportunity to once and for all declare his ruler, his, his rulership and his kingship, and that he's going to conquer the world, and he's going to be this great warrior. It was truly a surrender of power. Jesus had all the power that he needed. 
I have to believe that, that Jesus had access to the same legion of angels that he referred to in the Garden of Gethsemane at this moment in time when things were not looking good for him and things were, were, were about to get really ugly. I have to believe that Jesus had the same access and the same power to call down those legion of angels and get him out of there, to come to his rescue. In fact, I think that Jesus in this moment had certain rights. And some, some, some research would suggest that this trial was not a fair trial, that it was a, an illegal trial, things because it, was, it, it happened at night and it wasn't supposed to happen at night and it happened the day before the, the Sabbath and, and the, the, um, the sentence wasn't supposed to, to be rendered on the same day as the trial. And so it was an illegal trial and Jesus's rights were being violated. And surely Jesus should have used his power and demanded that he keep his rights. He is, after all, God. Surely he should have used this moment to exercise his power and his rights. He had every reason and every right to stand up and overpower his opponents. Instead, he was silent. Why? Why didn't he speak up for himself? There's another account of this story. There's actually an account of this story in all of the Gospels. Um, but there's an account, the account of this story in the book of John, I think, sheds a little bit more light into why Jesus acted in this way, surrendered his power and his self-interest. It's in, it's in John chapter 18, and it's just verse 36. And it says, Jesus said, and this is when, again, when, when Jesus is before Pilate and he's kind of um, going through all this and Pilate's saying, why aren't you standing up for yourself? Why aren't you exercising your power? And Jesus answers this way. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. Everyone who was waiting for this Messiah, this ruler, had a worldly kingdom in mind. They, they, they had the, the way that the world created kingdoms and the way that worldly kingdoms were ran, this is what they had in mind when they were longing for their Messiah. Now, certainly, maybe they wanted a little bit of God added to this worldly kingdom, kind of a, 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 godly, a godly version of this worldly kingdom is what they were longing for. The, the author Greg Boyd puts, puts it this way. He calls it a power over kingdom. They were longing for and wanting a power over kingdom. A kingdom where everything is reliant on exercising our power over others. Perhaps we could sum it up with this idea. They had a desire to see God win by way of his people exercising their power over others. Kind of the idea that if we win, then God wins. If our kingdom here on earth, if our worldly kingdom here wins, then God wins. This was the type of kingdom those waiting for the Messiah were hoping for and longing for. Can I, can I be bold enough in this moment to say that the kingdom 
that Jesus established and modeled to us is totally different and from a different world. You see, Jesus modeled for us a kingdom that doesn't have to be right, that doesn't put one's own rights above the rights of others, a kingdom that doesn't need to defend itself, a kingdom that doesn't rely on the victory of a worldly kingdom or even the success of a worldly kingdom. Instead, the kingdom that Jesus modeled for us is a kingdom of surrendered power. What Boyd would say, power under. Can I sum up these two actions of of surrender by using the words that Paul writes to the church in Philippi? When he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now I get it. These postures of surrender are difficult. They are totally counterculture to what we understand in our worldly kingdoms. They're not easy postures of surrender. So how did Jesus do it? Now I think the temptation is to simply gloss over this and to say that he's God Of course he can do it because God can do anything. Maybe that's part of it, but I think there's more. I want to rewind a little bit and go back to the beginning of this story. Back to before Jesus surrendered himself to Judas. Back to the story of the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew 26, starting in verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, He fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, If it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. 
When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. In order to surrender self-interest and to surrender power, Jesus had to first surrender his will. To say, not my will, not what I want to happen, but your will. And we talk about this surrender of will frequently, but I wonder if we, if we really sometimes grasp what that entails. First of all, this is, not, this is not about whether or not you're allowed to want something different. Jesus did. Jesus did not want his impending future. He wanted something different. That's what he prayed to his father. If there's any other way, I would much rather do that. When we surrender our will, it's okay to start with what you want. But here's what's important. It must end with what God wants. Surrender of will, I think, requires a few different things. First, it requires that we calculate the cost. Jesus, in this moment of surrendering will, had certainly thought about and calculated the cost of what it would say to say, not my will, but your will. He knew what was coming. He knew what the cost would be. It also requires a trust in God's plan to say that regardless of those costs that I have calculated, I trust that God's plan is better than my plan. It also requires prayer, as we see Jesus doing in the garden. This constant communication between the Father, who we have surrendered our will to. Then finally, it requires obedience. Taking steps of obedience to ensure that God's will is done. I would suggest that the entire death, burial, and resurrection events the very events that our faith and salvation rest on started with the surrender of will. Now here's the thing. When we take a moment to look again at these narratives, and maybe for some of us, this is a time where we have looked again and again and again and again and again because we've been in church for so long and we've, we've seen these stories and we've heard these stories. When we take a moment to look again and again and again, we don't have the luxury to simply be, of, being, of simply being a passive audience to this story that we're looking at. Kind of like a, a rubbernecker at a, at a car accident. You ever been guilty of that? where you see a car accident and you just can't help but, but look because you want to see what's going on, but you don't want to be an active participant in what's going on over here, right? And so as we know, in, in traffic in Columbus, that always leads to other accidents and other traffic jams, right? We don't have the luxury of looking at these stories and being a passive audience to these stories. You see, it's not enough to simply admire Jesus for the way that he was able to surrender in these moments. It's not enough to stand in amazement and say that Jesus was able to do this because he was God. 
It's not enough to simply say that Jesus took these postures of surrender so that he could fulfill prophecies in God's plans. Because here's the thing. We too are citizens of a different kingdom. In John, when Jesus declares that his kingdom is not of this world, he was not alone. Over and over and over in Jesus' ministries and teaching, he talks about this kingdom that he's establishing. And he typically does it in the form of a parable. And he tells a story to tell about how the kingdom of God is. And over and over and over, after he tells this story about how the kingdom of God is, he leaves us with an invitation to go and do likewise. To not simply admire this kingdom that he wanted to establish and think, yeah, that's a good idea. Hopefully someday we can get there. Rather, he invites us to go and do likewise. To live a life of surrender. To live a life of surrendered will, surrendered self-interest, and surrendered power. Would you stand with me? Jesus, these postures of surrender are not easy. They're not easy for us to grasp. And they're certainly not postures that are easy for us to take. But I believe that you have called us to go and do likewise. That we too are citizens of a different kingdom. As we were singing the song, It Is Well, this morning, I couldn't help but think that in order for us to be able to say, it is well with my soul, it has to start with our surrendered will. So would you even here and now, bring your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. That you would give us the wisdom, the courage, and the strength to go and do likewise, to live a life of surrender so that we can say, it is well with my soul. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless. You guys are dismissed.